Blog Talk That's what I'm going to bring to this show. For me. Hi, you're on the air with Patricia Adams Live. We have our special guest with us today, Jay Lee Holy, and he will be talking to us about anti-human trafficking. As always on Patricia Adams Live, we seek to have an organic conversation with our guests as we talk about life's difficult topics and how to overcome them and people who have gone through them and experienced them. I know that many of you where we shared this information on LinkedIn are leaving comments and some of you are not necessarily leaving comments, but I've read your headers and your profile and your profiles are very interesting. Some of you have had some very difficult situations where you have personally been trafficked and I hope that you're tuned into the show today. I hope that something will be said. And if you have any questions or comments for the guests at any time during the show, please feel free to call in at 515-605-9704. Again, if you have any questions or comments for our guests, the number is 515-605-9704. Now, Jay Lee, I'm going to just go through the bio that I have on you. And when it says that you are a human trafficking youth speaker, researcher, anti-trafficking consultant, and freedom advocate, the presence of human trafficking illuminates the issue of our definition of freedom, a.k.a. the lack thereof. Now, mm-hmm. he talks about his work and in making conversations, and he wants to be a part of anti-trafficking policy as well as I. And he is involved in research. And from that research, he says to the audience and to anyone who wants to engage with him, it's time to begin thinking about trafficking as a symptom of an even larger societal ill. And I can tell you that it is, I believe for me personally, it's very deep, very dark, very sinister, very much rooted in the fabric of this society, whether it's national or international. On Patricia Adams Live, we have a global audience. There are people who are listening to us from the Congo in Africa. There are people listening to us in Barcelona, Spain. There are people listening in Pakistan, Russia, and Canada, and all over the world. And we are gaining an audience in the international waters. And I am hoping that something will be said today to someone somewhere that will help them, that will be an aha moment, that will cause them to make a change if a change needs to be made in their lives for the sake of themselves, their family, or their loved ones. But at this present time, I want to let, as always, my guests take control of the show and give their explanation of this topic that we're talking about, anti-human trafficking. So, Jay Lee, I am going to let you pick up from here. And at any point where you need me to chime in, I will do that. And if I have a question, I will chime in. But for the meantime, welcome to Patricia Adams Live, and the show is yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so, so grateful to be uh, on the show with you. Thank you so much for allowing me to have this space. Can you hear me okay, as I'm clear? Yes. Okay. Uh, Well, I just want to say, like I said, thank you so much. Uh, This has been such an amazing year 
uh, not only for me, but I think for the movement itself. Um, like you said, we're here to talk about anti-human trafficking. Um, and as you mentioned, I am an anti-trafficking advocate. And basically what that sums up to for everyone listening is I go out into the communities and I talk to youth and parents and community members about what is human trafficking uh, concerning both awareness and also prevention. And it's been an amazing year for this developing conversation. And I say developing because it needs to happen every day. Uh, as Patricia was saying, there is such a dark and sinister background to this issue from which it stems because it's something that's been so um, hidden and unspoken up until this point that it's allowed, um, we've, we've kind of allowed this monster to grow as big as it wanted to um, without any sort of restraint or vigilance. And it's now that we're having a better understanding of what human trafficking is, how it operates, um, why traffickers, people who sell and uh, people who obtain and sell other people, why they do what they do and exactly how they do it. We're getting better at developing strategies to stop it. So uh, I go into communities and I teach um, specifically young people, parents, and community um, youth because we need to have um, as much education instilled into our young people as possible if you want to see a future impact, right? Because they are the next generation to be targeted for issues such as this, especially as the developing digital age is getting bigger. We're having more and more apps and more and more ways to communicate globally. Um, we're seeing that traffickers are using that as opportunities to pry, um, to prey upon our children. So they have to know what they're up against and who's looking at them and why. And then parents, because parents really do, um, really are our first defenders. You know, we typically think of our police, right, as our first responders to danger. But the truth is, it's parents. Parents need to have a better understanding of how to protect their children actively, um, proactively, really, proactively. Um, having an insight to what may be coming down the line to their children that may affect them. Um, and parents really do, in the case of awareness and prevention of human trafficking, they really do a great job at um, reaffirming the very things that I teach and I train on. So when we're talking about Internet safety for young people, I mean, that's obviously different than how it started back in the day when the most that parents had to worry about was maybe some bad bots or some ads that are a little um, grown and adult for children. But now today we have active pedophiles going on um, children chat uh, chat forms on video games and stuff like that, talking to our kids. So parents have to be aware that this is happening so they can teach their children, and we can all pretty much work as a village when it comes to protecting um, our vulnerable population. And then lastly, the community, because community is going to always be our eyes. In any situation that we may think of concerning human trafficking or even things outside of uh, trafficking but definitely overlap, such as child abuse, child sexual abuse, um, assault, Things like that, those issues work best. Um, I'm sorry, those issues, um, well, yeah, actually, they work best when the community is unaware that it's happening. So the more we can educate and wake up the community to be more vigilant and more uh, aware of what's happening um, behind closed doors, on the streets that we don't normally frequent, things like that. When we have a better community awareness, we see that policing is um, better enforced because we have better reports on the community, so that just basically means that the community can actually tell law enforcement what is happening um, in a way that's not only helpful to law enforcement, but it protects our streets. And we do that. That's our responsibility as community members, and no matter what community you live in, big city, metropolitan area, to rule, 
rural towns, small towns, it's still our responsibility to have a good insight about what's happening on our streets because these are the same streets where our children go to school, our children play, the same streets where our young adults who are going out into the world for the first time are going out and exploring, you know, their areas for themselves. We have to be aware. So as an advocate, it's my responsibility to make sure that the community is engaged in all of this information. They have credible and up-to-date information to work off of. And then on top of that, really putting some fire behind, putting some fire under the butts of our leaders, right, our community leaders who are working with law enforcement, working with policy, working with lawyers, working with our court systems to make sure that human trafficking is always a part of the conversation when we're talking about um, the big issues that communities are dealing with today. So uh, that's a really big part of what um, – a really big part of what I do on the day-to-day. But as you also mentioned, I work on the research side as well. I'm a big nerd. <laughs> Uh, for anyone listening, I have my master's in public policy, and I really focused mostly on research and statistical data during that process of graduate school because I wanted to have the best insight I possibly could on how we're actually reporting and collecting information because that's so, so important when it comes to making policy decisions, um, when we start talking about evidence and law. All these things really do come from having the best practices of research we can possibly have. So I wanted to make sure that when it comes to human trafficking research and data, that we were doing our best in any way that I can be a part of that process. I did my best, and the truth is we're still not very good at it. Um, trafficking data is um, still kind of in its infancy stage. They're still kind of kicking out better methodology to collect. Um, to collect information on people that we can't really see or touch. These are hidden populations. People who are modern-day slaves are hidden purposely from the streets, from the, the public's eye, and that makes it hard for researchers um, to really try to get a better understanding of what's happening today. So most of the statistics that you see, um, statistics such as uh, right now we're seeing just here in the, in the States, the United States of America, $32 billion, apparently, according to The Hill, uh, which is that article online, uh, $32 billion is made every year in the United States off of trafficking, the bodies of people, $32 billion. Um, when you look globally, it's $150 billion, which, is, uh, which was actually collected by the Human Rights Campaign, and they were – pretty good at their methodology trying to figure out their, they, they did a lot of great investigative research to get these numbers. But the truth is that still may be low because every day we're finding that we have more and more hidden populations of trafficking victims. Um, and again, I don't want to blow this up too big because I, I don't want people to get lose sight of who I'm talking about. I'm talking about vulnerable populations such as the homeless, youth, um, young people who are coming in and out of our juvenile uh, justice systems, um, at-risk children, children like uh, children who are were in the system, or runaways or throwaways, uh, children who are coming from backgrounds that aren't the greatest and haven't been healthy for them, children who have to fend for themselves, and then those children grow up to become adults who are still stuck in those cycles of poverty, um, having to take care of a family but not having suitable incomes to do so. Um, it becomes a very um, vicious cycle of having to survive instead of thrive, which causes them um, their safety nets. And these safety nets are what prevent people, 
from getting to situations such as trafficking, <clears throat> not having the opportunities to protect themselves from other individuals who are looking to capitalize off of their um, their vulnerabilities, their debt, their poverty, their uh, lack of self-esteem, their insecurities. So these are the victims that we're talking about. And worse today, we're, in, we're understanding better, again, going back to statistics, when it comes to today, we're understanding better that the average age of a child who is vulnerable that is sold into slavery, that age is 10 years old, 10 years old, the average age of a child sold into slavery. Um, and typically, 71% of this population of children are most likely to be female, um, little girls who turn into women who are lost in pretty much lost to the system and lost to the life of either sex work, prostitution, or in the case that we're talking about today, sex trafficking. Um, so it's a really big conversation that we have to have. Um, and for those who are coming into the conversation uh, new to all of these topics, uh, I would first like you to understand that human trafficking is nothing new. Um, actually, we've been dealing with human trafficking for hundreds of years, except before we called it slavery. Slavery, as we think in our textbooks, uh, for those who are American, uh, for the Americans and Western uh, countries listening in, slavery was the institution that we pretty much built most of our civilizations off of, um, making people, forcing, forcing people, uh, typically either very um, low impoverished minorities, and populations into slavery, which is basically just forced labor, free labor. We force people to build cities and roads and uh, tend to our crops for hundreds of years. And that's how we built most of our big countries these days, except back then we had slavery as a legal institution, whereas today it is illegal in most countries. Um, so what happened was when we started to force people to stop forcing people to work for free, they just found other ways to evolve slavery um, and make it more hidden so they can continue with their capitalization of, well, capitalization and exploitation of people, unfortunately um, underground and more hidden so they couldn't get in trouble. So there's really nothing new to this conversation. Um, we just have new terms. Um, these terms are the top three that you've probably heard either in media or in the news. Um, and it's the three main forms of trafficking that we have identified today, which is forced labor being the first one and the most popular form of trafficking worldwide. And, of course, forced labor is going towards what I was talking about before of slavery. However, the second one, sex trafficking. Sex trafficking is something that you've probably heard more in the, in the uh, recent years with news reports coming out with prostitution rings or People uh, organize gangs and criminal activity uh, selling women and then taking all their money. And typically what they're selling these women are for commercial sex acts, such as prostitution or any sort of sexual uh, act for money. And then the last one, state-funded. State-funded trafficking is something that you probably haven't heard about as much. It's not as uh, flashy as the first two, so it doesn't make it into news media outlets as fast, but it's essentially um, – the only form of legal slavery that still exists in most countries um, and typically takes shape and form in prisons, the federal prisons that force inmates or convicted criminals to work in either factories or um, around the community um, as free labor or very, 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 very cheap labor. So this is 
the top three. Again, that's forced labor, sex trafficking, state-funded. I would really encourage all of you to look into more, um, look in more into these different forms of trafficking because not only are they closer to home than you probably think, but if you really do get deep enough and have a better understanding, which I hope you would probably have by the end of our talk today, um, you would have a better understanding of how you maybe ran into a trafficking victim in broad daylight before, um, but were, but was not, um, you did not know the indicators, the indications of a trafficking victim, so you missed them, but they were right there in front of you. Um, and it happens, especially the most enforced labor, because those are cases where someone, that someone could be forced to work in a restaurant or work on a farm, or these are nannies and servants that are working in homes, um, but not being paid adequately, or maybe not at all. So it's a really big conversation. Uh, as an advocate, um, I hear many, many stories from survivors themselves or just uh, from reading and, you know, gathering information about cases where from the outside in, it was not as suspicious as people first thought, but the closer they got towards understanding the conditions and the background that the victim was going through throughout their torture, of being a trafficking victim, they finally began to understand that they have been seeing this in so many other cases, and they thought of it to be one thing, but it turned out to be trafficking, and that happens to be a lot. Um, but we are getting better as a society of understanding what is trafficking, and with that, like I said, we are becoming better as a community with reporting and helping protect our young people from this, uh, from this reality, a very, very dark reality. Um, and I can get into more of it, but Patricia, if you have any questions or have anything to add in, please hop in at any point, um, because I love having the conversation of what we can do towards prevention and not only just awareness. Uh, there are tons of things that we are missing as a, as a society today that is causing us from continuing, that is causing us to continually miss the mark when it comes to preventing trafficking victims or even saving the victims who are going through these um, these forms of trafficking today. You know, Jazz, um, I was listening to you talk and I'm having so many aha moments as always. That's why for me, I like to let my guests start out and talk about their topic, their specialty, because I don't know everything. I wish I did. Oh, me neither. <laughs> me neither. I, I, I it's wish a constant I did. process, so when, right? Trying to learn more. Yeah. And so when I listen and, you know, to hear a young man articulate on this subject, this is a subject that is very, very old. But as you mentioned, it has not been called that. It has many different names, right. many different uh, looks. But you talked about areas of trafficking that I hadn't even thought about. And I'm like, wow, okay. So, and then when you talk about awareness, I think having someone from your perspective to add to the conversation and to have people who are willing to listen, this is, I think, one of the biggest hindrances that we have is that when you go to explain a truth to someone and they don't want to hear what you have to right. say, they don't want to embrace what you have to say, you have to get past that hurdle in order to even have the conversation. Right. So most of all is to be able to 
tell somebody what trafficking is from your perspective. Right. Maybe your perspective is different from somebody else's perspective, and I believe that's why we have to have a diverse conversation around the table because having people who are meeting in private offices, private rooms, private spaces that don't look like the total population who have a totally different perception of what trafficking is, trying right. to define what trafficking is, Therefore, if Even by you don't country, really know, like where you live in the world, it looks different. Right now, <laughs> here in the United States of America, trafficking, you can ask so many different people trafficking questions, and you will not come up with the same answer. You will not come up right. with the same answer. So how can you create a punishment for something that has not really truly been defined? I mean, you can put a category on it, but the depth of it, um, it's... I I think that it's not it's kind of like something that needs to happen at the United Nations level, but not the United Nations. If if you follow mm-hmm. what I'm saying, I'm not saying yeah, that yeah, we need to go mean. before the United Nations, but something similar. But it has to, to be that like a, a globally collaborative thing. Exactly, exactly. Where we've got all people who are willing to listen. You know, maybe this isn't going on the way that you're talking about it in, say, Brazil, or maybe it's not going on in New York City or Texas the same way, but nevertheless, where it is happening and how it is happening, who are the people that it's happening to, who are the perpetrators of this, who's actually supporting this, because it only continues to exist because money is being generated. So somebody is buying what they're – exactly, somebody is buying what's being sold, bottom line. And one of the things that I remembered um, seeing last year Christmas, during the Christmas season, was something that was really troubling to me. I saw a lot of young people, maybe who had not even graduated high school, or if they had, had just graduated high school, roaming the city, in this metropolitan city that I was looking at, roaming the city, and all they had were themselves. You know, so young people grouping together with young, other young people on a holiday when they should have been at home or sitting around somebody's table, right? Then as I stood and I was observing this unfold in front of me, I started seeing cars like Hummer and, you know, fancy SUVs, blacked out, tinted out windows, okay, drive up and down the street looking at these young children. Then they would, you know, turn off and pick up a kid use this kid, and this kid would get out and just be, you know, holding themselves. And and I'm like, you can't trace them because from the time that they make a left turn on the corner, you don't know who picked them up because you've got like a stream of cars following these children. You don't know who picked them up. You don't know who they got in the car with because you're blindsided by everything else, but something is not right. So then I'm trying to figure, okay, how are these children existing? Where were they living on a day-to-day basis? And then you start mm-hmm. to see grown people, grown people somewhere circulating around them, almost like pimps, if you would. Yeah. So just to, just to paint a picture, say you have a group of boys, and then you have grown men who are the pimps of these boys or the pimps of these girls, and they are literally, you know, selling the services of these children. But the troubling right. part of it is, is that people 
who drive, you know, the big Hummers, the big whatever, I'm like, I bet you left home telling somebody you were going to pick up some cranberry sauce. Right, exactly. <laughs> they they probably you know left their I, wife and their children at home. Uh, or they're yeah. like, that's the biggest thing for me. Um, having conversations with community is my favorite part uh, because you get an insight um, into why people, I guess, do what they do to a certain extent. Um, and they do what they do because of their background, their their, more, their morals, their principles, their values, and that kind of just sums up to be their their moral compass for how they make decisions for either themselves or their family. But talking to different communities, you get an insight to a, a larger picture of what the community's values and principles are. So, like, talking to, say, a rural small town community, um, they're going to give you a different um, response to this conversation because – they're typically a little more, um, they're less, what should I say? I don't want to sound like I'm making a point, a negative point. Um, but smaller towns, less distractions from, like, big city stuff. Um, so they're not as consumed with um, certain standards or trends and all these fads. They're more focused on traditional values, like family and uh, church and things like that. So they're going to respond from that space. Whereas if you go to a college campus, a college community, a college town, um, they're looking more, they respond to this issue uh, with more of a, with more of a, a perspective of how come people don't know or where, the, where it exists online. There's just different values that people work off of. Um, and speaking towards what you're explaining right now, there was this one case where I felt like a parent was, um, she had said very candidly that she she was a godly woman and that everything that she did she did because she came from a space of uh being a christian and that's how she really applied herself in approach situations um so when she was responding to how we could possibly maybe do something more to protect our children um she was focused more on the aspect of how we need to involve more say prayer in schools or we need to invoke more um more modesty in our girls and things of that nature, um, which troubled me because the truth is we've had pastors and community leaders who are came from the church who were convicted of either being a buyer of a child for sex or sold a child for sex. Um, and it's like in situations like that, we have to sometimes separate ourselves from what we think may be true and stand more boldly in what we see to be true. Exactly this the thing that you're saying is uh, there may be fathers who go out and do this thing, do these things to other children but come home and don't touch their own. Or there may be um, mothers who would sell their child to a boyfriend, an uncle, or something like that for rent money, but then will turn around and never themselves sell themselves for um, any sort of money or value. This is the reality that we're living in. People are capitalizing off of other people's bodies, and they're making their own excuses as to why it's okay for them. Um, and until we can come together and have a conversation about what is exploitation, um, what does it mean to be vulnerable, and what does it mean to hold our family members, our friends, and ourselves accountable to the things that we do to others, we're going to keep seeing that we're going to keep making excuses for ourselves or others as to why they did what they did. And every community is going to come up with a different excuse. Some will say poverty. Some will say um, 
this is all they knew. They grew up in a lifestyle like this, and they didn't see another option for themselves. Um, and I'm not talking about the victims. I'm only talking about buyers and traffickers because the victims don't get a choice. They are literally forced into these situations. However, the traffickers and the buyers do have choice. They do have agency and and would be the only factor in a situation or a formula like this that if taken out, we would see there would be less trafficking, obviously. Um, but it's hard to get that through different communities because, um, again, their values and where they're working from may sometimes actually contradict the very things that we would have to do to stop this issue. They may prioritize um, keeping their business like uh, Patricia, I'm sure you've heard, like in people of color uh, in, in our communities, there is definitely this tone of uh, what happens in a house stays in a house. We've heard that before uh, in some way, shape, or form. Everybody has. Um, stepping outside of that cultural norm for some individuals and some families is sometimes very ludicrous to them. When I, 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 when I do community training, I, I, I often tell some people, you have to be traitors to your culture. And that basically just speaks to us. You have to have an understanding that sometimes the very thing that we have to do to protect ourselves or someone else may be against the very thing that we've been brought up against. Um, so telling, um, telling a teacher or a, another adult or another uh, person who may be able to help you um, that you are someone that you know maybe being trafficked or sexually assaulted or sexually abused um, could literally be life or death. Um, could be the very thing that saves the life. But we've all in some way, shape, or form been taught this form of um, you must keep certain secrets to protect the family. But the truth is sometimes our families don't protect us. So how, and so in conversations like that, that's where it starts getting very difficult to instill a new way of doing things with certain people, um, especially when it comes to protecting our youth. Um, we have to start seeing things differently and doing things differently because what worked before has only helped things like trafficking grow and survive. We have to start changing the way we think about certain issues and problems, especially when it comes to mental health and um, sexual education. We have to start making some changes and evolving. If not, we will never truly be able to get certain things like trafficking, especially sex trafficking, um, to a level, um, to a very low level, which is where we need it. Right now it's far too high. And it's very, very, it's a very, very interesting thing, both from a social, from a social, wow, can't speak, from a, a sociological standpoint, but also a psychological standpoint. You know, that's very funny. Patricia, I don't know if you heard this saying about what happens in this house stays in this house. I was like, he is too young to be asking me that question. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, really? Seriously? Like, okay. So that is, I don't want to say an epidemic and where the root of that comes from is a whole other story. I wanted, you know, I want to say that it came from slavery, but I really don't. And and the reason why I say that it doesn't come from slavery is because I 
was a student of history, African history, as part of my college degree. I was a pre-law major, and so I was studying American history, and I was studying African history, and, and there are different types of history. But my biggest thing was things that I thought might have originated in slavery, I found came from the motherland. Very interesting. And, yeah, very interesting because even though we had slavery and we were told to be quiet, to be silent, uh, not to talk about this, not to talk about that, we came with our own set of norms and, and issues that we already had prior to slavery. So if you if you think about the whole reason why we had slavery is because our own people were at war with us and they saw that as a way of getting rid of us. So it's it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. So we we can't just lay it at the door of slavery, but what we can do is speak up. We make it possible for people to speak up because right now that's why I do this show. I've been doing this show now for over 10 years. And my goal is for people to speak up. And that includes my my own story. And I have yet to really tell my story. And I keep asking myself, am I going to tell my story? Of course I am. But I'm so interested in helping other people tell their story. Yeah. And to bring credibility to this platform and to make it possible for people to say, you know what? I didn't realize this was happening. I didn't realize this was happening. I was blindsided by this. So now that someone is explaining this to me and it's not somebody who's telling me something that I don't want to hear, it's somebody else adding light and shedding something on the subject matter that now maybe there is an aha moment. There's an aha moment and you realize, okay, either I'm a part of the problem or I'm going to be a part of the solution. For me, my takeaway is that when people come on this broadcast and they talk about their subject matter areas, that it causes someone to wake up, causes them to have an aha moment, causes them to want to be a part of the solution, and if they are a part of the problem, stop being the problem. I am not, I I wish that I could be the person to say, okay, this is this is wrong, you know, you're guilty, and bam, that's it. But at the same time, it's like this is probably more for the people who are being victimized. This this show, I would say, is more for people who are, who are being victimized because the predators, they really aren't interested. <laughs> they really, really <laughs> aren't interested in, in, in changing because it works for them. You know, this, this system yeah, that, exactly. hides, that hides in the dark, it works for them. So the purpose of this show is for those people who are trapped in the dark, who are blindsided, and who need to have a wake-up call, need to have a revelation of the depth of what's happening, what's going on, what they've been through. Because I've had people, there was um, a lady that I interviewed. Oh, my God. And I, I, I can only tell you that, when I found her book, I find I do a lot of digging on the internet, and when I find something, it's like I want to talk to this person. All they can do is tell me no, but I'm going to ask them anyway. And there was this uh, woman, uh, Linda Day, 
and hopefully some other people will go back and listen to it. She had been sexually abused by her mother. Well, nobody does that. That's what people say. Nobody does that. Mothers don't do that. Mothers don't sexually abuse their children. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And until we stop putting people on pedestals and say, okay, you know, mom is up there with apple pie, baseball, and the flag. Right. Any human being who would harm another human being, I don't care if you gave birth or you procreated, I don't care how it came about or how it happened or whatever, no human being has the right to harm another human being, especially a human being who is not able to defend for themselves. But that, that is something that, since I've been doing this, I've seen where people have offered up their children. I've seen where people have just here, just, just here locally, if you Google the news, you'll see where people are going to these like massage parlors, right, thinking they're going to a day spa, but in reality, right. it's, they're holding people in the back. Yes. They're, they're, you know, and then they are rotating people in and out. Um, they are just um, sex trafficking. They're, they're slaves. Right. They're coming here. I've seen Asian women, and I'm, I'm not trying to take this away from domestic, but I've seen Asian women walking the streets, and when I, in a whole new way of street walking, and, and I want to say this because I need people to understand this, that this Asian woman was dressed professionally, okay? So we, we're dealing with a totally different class of traffickers because this right. woman was walking downtown. She was walking amongst other people who were business people who were working their day, everything, and she blended in. But she was actually turning tricks. And I'm like, how did this woman get here? First and foremost is, is my first thing, because you clearly tell she was kind of like dependent on somebody somewhere. So I started just to watch her, to see what she was doing, where she was going, everything. And then all of a sudden, the police kind of swooped in. They didn't come for her. They were coming for somebody else. And she took off. And when she took off, I saw a gentleman, and I just have to say it, he was a black gentleman. And I believe that he must have been her handler, pimp, whatever you want to call it. But he had her dressed up professionally. And I've seen women walking up and down the street who literally assault men, literally come up on men and assault them. And, and I, like, let me paint the picture of what I saw. So somebody don't call me, don't come for me. I'm telling you now, this is firsthand. Okay. Not something somebody told me. I saw this with my own eyes. Right. That a man walking down the street on break came. Um, all of a sudden, a woman just bum rushes him, comes up on him. She's putting her hands all over him, pushing him up against the wall, trying to get him to buy her body, right? And when I tell you she was manhandling him, had him pushed up against the wall, and grabbed him by his scrotum, to the point that she got him aroused to the point to where he wanted it. You see what I'm saying? It was like he was minding mm-hmm. his own business. He was at lunch, but a predator knows their prey. Right. Okay, so when she assaulted him, it offended him. It scared him because I saw it 
in his face. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is, at first I thought maybe this is a boyfriend, girlfriend issue, whatever. So I kept watching, kept watching, kept watching. And then finally she breaks away from him. And as she's walking away, he walks away. I'm thinking, okay, he's saying no, right? So they go around the corner. She disappears another way. He disappears another way. Next thing I know, he shows back up and he's straightening up his clothes. And I'm like, did he just? Right. So because, much, you, know, I'm, I'm, there. you know what I'm saying? Because I know when she first came up on him, he was not a willing participant. But because she got him aroused, he became a willing participant. <sighs> right. And then, but that and, doesn't only just happen to adults. That also happens to children uh, in high yeah. school settings. And yes. uh, in spaces where you'll find young people, like amusement parks or anything surrounding like a mall or something like that, uh, there's been so many cases where adults will also uh, try to make uh, buyers out of children um, because there's just, like you said, a putter knows their prey. Um, and those who seem seeming to be more uh, inclined in certain ways are going to be sought out first. Um, that's a very particular situation that you witnessed. That's very interesting. May I ask what city or where, what area that was? Dallas. 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 Yeah, I um, believe it. Houston then, uh, is like number two in when it comes to sex trafficking um, in the states, which is uh, mainly based upon, uh, based out of out of their uh, large oil and factory uh, industry that they have there. There's a lot of traffic that comes through. Um, just through like populations of that industry, and when that actually created a very large market for child sex trafficking or just um, prostitution generally, which is very interesting. And then you know the next thing is that as I'm thinking about how that unfolded, I remember after she walked away from him and he walked away from her, and then he showed back up, you know, fixing himself. Then eventually another guy shows up. Now, this guy is not somebody she's trying to get to sell or buy anything from. Clearly, this is her handler. All right. Then I've seen, like I said, grown people who are trafficking children. And when I say children, like teens and whatever. But now, let's, let's see the cause and then the effect that it's having on the children. Because I also encountered a group of children. And this young boy, he was a part of the LGBTQ community. That's, that's how I'm going to say that, okay? And this mm-hmm. young girl came up on him knowing this, and she told him, I know you used to doing boys, but tonight you're going to do me. And I'm in place of doing, she used the F word. And this child was horrified. Now, they're all the same age. Wow. And she kept telling she kept telling him, you know, you're gonna do me tonight, you're gonna do me tonight and he looked horrified. And they were they were a group, like a little gang group. Mm-hmm. So now it's like you have these children who are being trafficked, who are being impacted, now they're also impacting each other. Because there's a hierarchy. Oh, absolutely. There's a hierarchy. So, you know, when we talk about trafficking when we talk about trafficking, there's so many different characteristics, so many different nuances to it, so many different effects from the cause of it. And you cannot just paint it with a broad brush 
and just say slap this label on it and this is it. It's it's a deeper thing. And then yeah, and then the other thing with this um Jaylee is that Jaylee Coley, sorry, Jazz. The other <laughs> thing that frustrates me is this overall right now. I have produced this show since 2008. And I have interviewed people, some people who don't want to be on the air. I have other interviews that I've done with people just having conversations, just a general conversation like we're having right now. And they don't want to talk. I've had people reach Mm -hmm. out to me privately and tell me thank you, but they don't want to talk. Okay. Then you go from that to my background and what I know and what I've experienced and what I have seen, and for years I tried to figure out how could this exist? How could this exist? And it exists because we have a system that supports it. We have a system that makes it comfortable, that makes it okay. So you go back and you look at Woody Allen, right? You go yes. back and yeah. there was there was an article in the paper, not, I keep saying paper, but hello, not a newspaper, physical paper, but an online newspaper, right. okay? And they were talking about someone who died and who had basically taken care of Rosa Parks for the last 10 years of her life. And they never made a big to-do about it, never went public with it or anything like that. They paid uh, mm. Rosa Parks rent. Then mm. they went on to talk about another person who was a judge who had passed away. And they quoted this judge, and he was quoting this individual named Andre Dyer, A-N-D-R-E-D-I-R-E. And I thought, that's a pretty cool quote. But for me, I got to know the source of the quote. I got to know. Right, you're you're investigating. You got to know all the information. I got to know. Um, um, So I, I said, okay, who is this Andre Dyer before I start quoting him too? And I dug into him, and, oh, my God, I was, like, I was livid. I was absolutely livid. And he was a white gentleman, and he had been friends with Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde played, you know, playwright, written a lot of movies, all of this kind of stuff, and and a lot of his movies are being remade, all right? And Oscar Wilde eventually gets arrested for his bad behavior of sleeping around with children. But in the meantime, Andre Dyer, Andre Dyer is one of his peers. Now, Oscar Wilde was born in 1854. Born in 1854, and he died in 1900. And Andre Dyer was about that same age range, all right? Andre Dyer tells a story of going to meet up with Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde brings in a young boy with a hood on his head. And he lets the little boy go into this room with Mr. Dyer. And Oscar goes into the room with the other boy. Andre goes on to say that his boy, his name was Muhammad. He talks about how much he enjoyed being with Muhammad. Muhammad was a boy. He clearly said that he was a boy. And he said, I had uh, basically with this boy five times. 
five times, a child. He's, you know, I held yeah. this child. He talks about it. You know, he calls himself. He says there are, there are people who are sodomites, and then there are people who are pedophiles. And he said, so I consider myself the latter, a lover of boys. And she said he wow. and Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde enjoyed these boys. And he said, after I left this young boy, and they were in Africa, specifically they were in Africa. After I left this young boy, he says, I went back to my hotel room, and I pleasured myself at the memory of this young boy. That is so... <sighs> so, that when, is... when you... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Enraged. That so, is incredibly. There's the way you describe it, and I'm sure if I read it for myself, but it, there's just so much. It seems like there's pride in it. Almost. Uh, it was. Almost, like it, it was. That sounds so. And that's the thing that I was talking about. People will justify, but Jesus, but that is, wow. And and yeah. then that, and then the fact you. that the context happens in Africa is makes mm-hmm. even more sense truly because there's been so many cases where businessmen, people with money going to other countries to freely um, have sex with children. And that's literally the purpose of the trip. Um, and then they come back to the state and act as if nothing happened. But, oh, my God. Yeah, so he so he, talked, he talked about meeting up with um, Oscar multiple times, right? Mm-hmm. And they went to India. I mean, they just, they went global. They they were everywhere. And so this gentleman, you know, Oscar was Irish, and this gentleman was French. And the French, I think, gave him a day, named the day after him or something like that. Wow. But both both Oscar and this gentleman, they were married. They had wives. They had children. I can imagine. And if you think this is 1800, then you go back and you look at, um, who is it, the, the psychologist? All the the fathers of psychology I was studying in um, family. Oh God, my, for I was thinking about getting my master's as an MFA, you know, marriage and family. Mm-hmm. And I was devastated when I read the comments of the psychologists of that time frame. And I said, these guys are pedophiles. I'm like, this is what our psychological system is built on. This is how we perceive treatment for people. Yeah. They stopped. I said these guys were nothing but pedophiles, and and the teacher was like, no, they weren't. No, they weren't. You have to consider the times. You know, uh, young kids no. back then. You know, they could get married no. at four. I mean, seriously, she said, you know, you know, they could get married at fourteen back then. And I said, you know, I said I get that. I said, but getting married at fourteen and having it? someone have intercourse with you at eight, I was like, really? Um, so yeah. I I had to stop. I had to stop that because I couldn't. I couldn't handle that whole process. I just couldn't handle that. So. Coming back, just to say having this conversation and coming back to where we are, all right, coming back to where we are right now, is that the the history of this society that has made it Mm -hmm. possible, it's kind of like sponsorship. Because, like, you know, when you do an ad, like, okay, this um, segment of our show is being sponsored by blah, 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 blah. Right. Our society has made it possible for people to do this, mm-hmm. made it possible for people to go into other places. So they go into Thailand, and uh, fathers, mothers send their children to the shore right. to be with men. And if they can't, and these, 
Right, and if they can't do it internationally, they they find it domestically. Exactly, exactly. So um, there is uh, the Association of Men Loving Boys, the National Association of Men Loving yes. Boys, and they had oh. infiltrated Facebook, and I believe that they've also tried to infiltrate YouTube, and I think that that's why YouTube has shut down a lot of comments on children's channels because of that. So this is right. this is something it's that epi- it's a global system, and like there's so many they they're not there. And I like what we have sometimes done as I think as a nation, specifically with the United States. I think we have this this underlying um, suspicion or I guess thought process that pedophiles. Um, are only pedophiles if caught. Um, and we say that because we're very hesitant to put that label on those who have not repeat been that. Repeat, tried repeat and convicted. That. I'm sorry. Repeat that. Um, we have this underlying assumption that pedophiles um, aren't pedophiles um, unless they're caught. Uh, we have a hesitancy to place that label upon people um, when there's only accusations or um, when there's only alleged rumors um, of their pedophilic uh, background. We have a hard time, and this is, I, I would equate it to the same reason that we have a hard time believing women when they come forward with, um, with convictions of sexual assault or sexual abuse. Um, we have a hard time believing people about these things because it's not until either it hits home for us personally or it's not until there is a quote-unquote black and white, like a 100% conviction that we finally feel comfortable in ourselves to put that label upon them, and that's the issue. You brought up first Woody Allen, which I think is a great example of someone who has been numerously um, accused of being not only inappropriate with children that he worked with on his set, but literally having developed a relationship with his stepdaughter. Um, when she was in her teenage years, and he was well into his 30s, almost 40s, I believe. Um, someone who has been critically acclaimed for decades now to be a, a, a famous playwright or director, um, all these accolades. But when it came to his really salacious and dark history of child abuse, and so many people have come forward to accuse him of this, there's yet to be any sort of uh, confirmation um, about him towards this because he has the money to suppress these rumors and suppress um, these these accusations and to, you know, give out hush money and things like that. He has enough money to keep this under wraps. But even though we have had all of these accusations, similar to R. Kelly, when all his accusations were coming out, people still would not realize and label them either a pedophile or a trafficker or anything along those lines because of, I think, fear of they themselves somehow being wrong. And here's my thing about that. If you're wrong, yay. But if you're right, yay. Right? Because at the end of the day, we're not going to get anywhere. Keep giving people the benefit of the doubt when there's been numerous accounts of people giving very credible, uh, very credible allegations and reports of sexual assault. These men have shown a history and a consistent history of being inappropriate with children, either sexually or in other ways. And that is not okay. We have to look at them as what they are. They are predators. They are people who are 
obviously using their power and their, their superiority and their money to abuse and exploit children. But yet still we have this, we, we protect them by not wanting to call them or hold them accountable in ways. And I don't know why. Um, in most cases, I think it's mostly people don't want to come out and appear to be wrong. They, want, they don't want to be the bad guy, quote unquote. But when we're looking literally at the bad guy, such as a Woody Allen, such as a R. Kelly, who else? People who have been um, famously accused for these sorts of things, but yet we still had all these people trying to protect them and say, no, you don't have all the facts. No, you don't know this. Um, that only gives a really clear indication to other pedophiles and other predators that they too can do a lot of bad and still only be held accountable for the little that they do. Like it, it is this insane that we, we are constantly getting red green flags um, and clear indications that we will not hold certain people accountable if they seem to be um, in high enough authority, if they seem to have power, if they hold too much uh, uh, leadership in our communities, we won't. We will be lenient on them, and that's ridiculous. We have far more people today. We have far more like legally, federally registered sex offenders, sex offenders today than, of course, any other time in history. And we have them publicly registered because it is literally our right to know who are who are the individuals who are going to be a danger to our children because these are people who have been caught already, right? But at the same time, for those who haven't been caught and people who can evade being caught, people with money, they get to run free and then they get to travel the world and do all these escapades and, and exploit young people and others for their bodies and things like that because we're too afraid to call them out on it and be wrong. And that's an issue. Like that's, that's one of the hills that I die on. Like I would rather be wrong and have to put a foot in my mouth because it came back that that person isn't a sex offender, especially when it comes to children. But at the same time, if there's suspicion, if there's doubt, I'm going to believe the child and I'm going to believe the victim until, I, until there's a very clear reason not to. But at the end of the day, I believe victims, and I think we should all be a little more brave to do so. You know, um, again, even the more, for instance, I grew up in a church setting. And within the church setting, there was a pastor, and the pastor was having relations with women in the church and fathering children. He also had a history of approaching young children. Now, I want you to think about this. He was having children with women in the church, but he was also approaching children and myself as one of them. I remember as a young kid hearing that he had gotten arrested and went to jail for touching a young girl. And mm. I don't know how I navigated in my mind. I'm thinking, oh, yay, yay, yay. No, he's not going to be touching me anymore. Right. So the church came together and raised the money and got him out. What? He was, never brought up on, he, was, he was never brought up on charges. He was back in the pulpit, and I'm thinking, like, wow. So for years, this man was able to continue this life route. And then as I grew up still in the church, not knowing any better than not to be in the church, I still would 
be occasioned by other men, other people in the church approaching, say, the guardians of my life asking for permission to marry me. I remember one guy, he was probably, I know he was older than me, and I was 13 at the time, and he came to the house to ask for my hand in marriage. And I'm standing there looking at him, and I'm standing there looking at the people who were my guardians, saying, like, I'm 13 to myself. Like, what are, you, what are they getting ready to do? Because I thought, you know, they were getting ready to strike a deal. <laughs> you know? Right, because that's um, terrifying. And he said, I'll wait for her. He said, I'll wait for her. And I remember this man went to his grave waiting for me. He went to his grave waiting for me. He never got married. And I thought, nobody said anything about it. They didn't say anything about it. They didn't report him nothing. Then as I got even older and I started hearing of stuff happening at our governing body church, and then I thought that's the reason why they didn't do anything to him. That's the reason why they got him out of jail was because the people at the top were doing stuff. So a system exactly. is not going to correct itself if the head is still confused. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And that's where yeah. that's where the argument comes that if you talk about the people who are joining us, let's, let's say R. Kelly. So I wrote like a short article about R. Kelly on LinkedIn. And I said, I feel sorry for R. Kelly on one count is that he never got justice for being molested by his own family. I feel sorry for the little boy, R. Kelly, who did not get justice from being molested. But then the grown man, R. Kelly, who is fully aware of what he's doing, I don't feel sorry right. for. And no. I don't feel sorry for the R. Kelly who had a 14-year-old girl offered up to him by her father. And then it became suddenly misconduct because the father didn't get what he wanted from R. Kelly. So R. Kelly says when he gave the girl to me, he knew what time it was. The girl knew what time it was. Even though I had a daughter the same age as this girl, because I thought about it, I had second thoughts about it. But hey, you know, they knew what they knew what time it was. So then let's roll into uh, Bill Cosby because, I mean, I don't want to make this about the Me Too movement because, number one, they have gained a lot of momentum, and it's not – I'm about human beings. I want this to be a conversation about human beings. So if you go in and you think about Bill Cosby is an actor in the 60s, 70s, whatever, who is getting white women to him? Who is getting women to him? His family are people who are in power, who are in position. Nobody is going to walk back stage without what access. Where, where do they get the access from? So my my issue with Bill Cosby is, is that since you know that people were making these women available to you, then why don't you tell on them? Why don't you tell on them? Why don't you tell who your handlers were who were responsible for providing you with these women? The same thing for R. Kelly. People, his provided, his suppliers provided him what he wanted. Why didn't he tell who his provider right. was? It was a full operation. Exactly. So the reason why this is the way that it is, it's not about women. It's about human beings. Is that if this can happen to a man, it can happen to a boy, it can happen to a girl, it can happen to a woman. And women, I'm a woman, and I have the right to say this. This is my experience. I, I too, have my own stories to tell. But what I'm trying to say and have on this show and this conversation is level the playing field and make it about human beings. Until we can include a human being, no matter who you are, male or female, 
boy, girl, man, woman, black, white, red, or brown, this is a conversation that will be lopsided. It will not get the what it needs. So for me, we just lost someone who was on the line. I apologize. Call if you call back in, I'll get back to you. There was someone who was calling in, and they had been holding not long, but maybe too long for them. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to say in my portion on human trafficking is, is that it's just that. It's a human condition. We're not talking about anti-female trafficking. We're not talking about anti-male trafficking. We're talking about anti-human trafficking. Anytime another human being will harm another human being, be them related by blood, if they bought them, they're selling them, they're trading them, whatever they're doing, it's wrong. And the only way to make a dent and make a change and make a shift in this, but, again, the powers that be. There are people who are in power, who are in position, who aren't really that interested in making this happen because they, too, are a part of the problem. So I don't have names to give. I don't have anybody that I'm fixing to blast or put on, whatever. I'm simply saying is it's based on my experience, based on my observation, based on what I saw. Too many people who are in high places have this same issue. Therefore, they aren't going to do or say anything about it because then the pendulum would swing their way. Bottom line. Absolutely. Bottom line. So yeah, Patricia, you're one hundred percent spot on. So, you know, yeah, how is how is it gonna change? How how is it gonna change? It's gonna have to change by individual people like yourself. Right. Having right. this conversation, going into the community, giving voice to the people, helping people to understand what trafficking is, understand what their rights are, understand that this is what needs to happen. So for me, I'm dealing with my own battles. I'm dealing with my own issues, my own things, and enough is enough. You know, this this coming into 2020, I'm telling everybody this is time to speak up. Speak up. Absolutely. Men, speak up. Absolutely. Women, but speak up. Find somebody who will hear you. Find a safe space, whatever. But in the meantime, is that nobody, nobody should have to continue to say that you can't do this and you can't do that. And I'm I'm putting it out there is that if anything in, in my life that someone would say, okay, what would you do right now if I could do something? And I love Eric Clapton. I really, really do. It's not a crush Eric Clapton or anything. I love his music. I love his lyrics. But there was something that I was drawn to of Eric Clapton. And I said, you know, let me dig into Eric Clapton a little bit more. So I, you know about the young boy that he had, this is the child that fell out of the apartment building and died. And some of the most soulful music that he wrote after this baby died, just it, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's like, you know, would you know me if I saw you in heaven? Would you know me? Would you know my name? I thought, you know, that mm. was really a powerful song. But I said, there's something deeper to Eric Clapton. So I started digging into Eric. Eric Clapton had a hellless childhood. <laughs> had a hellish childhood. And yeah. most of the musicians that have graced the stage their childhood history has been horrifying. Yeah, uh, Rick yeah, James, so. yeah, I mean, you know, Rick James, I, I tried to forget Rick James, uh, or the hit, same thing. Most of the people who are on stage who have these personas, because we don't know these people, right? We don't, we don't, we'll never meet some of these movie stars. 
but a lot of them right. have very hideous and heinous past things that have happened mm-hmm. to them. So they find comfort and solace in the state. They find comfort and solace in being somebody else. Right? That's what makes them right. great at what they do because that's that's an outlet for them. But in the meantime, the, there are other children. And, and so for me, I'm, I'm putting it out here is that enough is enough. Uh, enough is Absolutely. enough. And Absolutely. I, you know, I, I keep doing, keep trying to um, – Put this out here because God knows I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong so bad. But no. No. Um right. so at you know, at the end of the day is that this this is something that's huge and it's gonna take a lot of us. It's gonna take a lot of us speaking up in twenty twenty. It's gonna take yes, a lot each of and us. every one of us. It is crucial going into the next decade that we consider ourselves to be not only agents of change, but truly warriors for change, because we're going to have to fight this. This isn't something that's going to go away passively. Um, This is something that's going to take literal deconstruction of large systems um, and sometimes plucking people um, like some of our political leaders out of their seats because of their inactivity um, around issues such as this. Uh, Human trafficking is such a great issue and they don't mean great as in positive and great as in large. It's such a large issue because it intersects um, too perfectly with many other dangers that we see in modern-day society, such as sexual abuse, such as sexual assault, such as uh, gang relations, such as poverty. Um, poverty fuels human trafficking. The more poor people that we have, the more people who are lacking in so many basic minimal um, safety nets in life are literally forced into trafficking situations or sex work or other dangerous situations that may not only hold them um, in this lifestyle, but actively launch them into these spaces. Um, So if there's anyone who's listening, um, please understand that there are so many organizations today that exist, like well more than you probably expect or hear of from the day to day. I really implore you to hop on Google, uh, hop on the search engine, and type in human trafficking organizations. Um, and then type in your actual city where you live so you can see the actual list of organizations that are there that are available between shelters to uh, drop-by zones or offices um, to even our um, law enforcement programs that we have, our task force on the statewide level. We have so many agents out there working right now to try to get a better handle on the situation, but truly we're not going to fight it and we're not going to win this fight without each and every one of us having an understanding of what is human trafficking and what we can do in our own homes to prevent this from becoming a reality that we see and experience. Um, And lastly, I definitely want to point out the most important. Please report, 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 report. If you see any sort of suspicious activity that kind of activates your sixth sense, you know, like that gut feeling that you see when something – something odd is happening in front of you or you maybe have an interaction with a business or a person or you, like Patricia was saying, um, those examples of the storm on the street that she witnessed where there's just so much odd behavior happening. Please report. Report to local law enforcement, 911 or whatever the equivalent is in your area or country and definitely find um, the human trafficking hotline for your country in America is the NHTRC, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, uh, operated by Polaris, and that number is one eight 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 three seven three 
1-800-227-8888. Um, please understand that this is a uh, reporting tip line. So what's happening today is that with a lot of law enforcement agencies, when you report to them, they can't necessarily have an immediate response. Or in most cases, if you are seeing a victim or a survivor of human trafficking and you're possibly hoping to get them to a space of safety, get them away from their trafficker or their pimp or their handler, we actually have people in place that can go in and swoop in and rescue them from their situation. But you will only have – and the hotline that I'm referring you to will help you with that process. Um, and, it, and it's anonymous. It's not necessarily making you an agent or an officer. What you're doing is you're putting, you're starting the process for that person to receive some sort of rescue or safety. And again, that number is 1-888-373-7888. Okay, and it's a really free 24/7 hotline. Um, has all the sorts of available. You can you can also text in, and uh, you can text be safe to eight to three three seven three three. And they'll also give you options towards um, helping that individual and then at least getting them on the radar of local law enforcement. So local law enforcement can then do their job and have an understanding of what human trafficking may be looking like in their area. Um, we have opportunities to save people, but it's just if our lack of education and awareness of this issue is blocking us from helping another, it's going to keep funneling um, more victims into this issue. And what we're trying to do right now is liberate everyone everywhere. Thank you, Jazz. And if you want to repeat those numbers again, I think save out like three numbers and some websites just so that people can capture it again because we're deep no into problem. the show right now and we have um, 16 minutes left and I really right. wouldn't want anybody to have to like fast forward to get to that number. You know, whatever numbers, websites you wanted to give out, give them out again and then give out yours of how they can reach you as well, please. No problem. Thank yeah, you. no problem. Um, again, that's the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, and that number is 1 888 and again, um, to learn more about human trafficking, please go to your local search engine, type in human trafficking organizations or org, type in your city, city's name, address, and then that will pull up a, a list that may be comprehensive towards all the organizations in your area that could either teach you more about human trafficking or offer some sort of support to victims in your area. Um, and if you'd like to have, and you have any questions for me, I'm always available. Um, you can find my information uh, on my website, which is jleecoley.com, and that's J-L-E-E-C-O-L-E-Y.com. Again, that is J-L-E-E-C-O-L-E-Y.com. Um, and there's more information about me. And if you have any questions about trafficking or would like some information, you can find it there. And please look me up on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, please look me up on LinkedIn. It's a great place for me to uh, do some commenting with the communities of anti-trafficking organizations, as well as some community members who are interested in learning more about human trafficking. Um, and those who are looking to get some sort of training in their organization, 
Uh, I live in the Atlanta area, but I do also travel. Um, so if you'd like to have information about booking, you can also find it there at jleecoley.com um, where you can see how you can um, bring me in to train your office, your hospital staff, your school, or anything around um, community and awareness about human trafficking. We're always looking to start the conversation anywhere and everywhere possible. Thank you. Thank you, Jazz. And the same for me. Right now, it's like all I can do is what I'm doing, and it's not enough for me. I, I want to do so much, so, so, so much, and it's hard. It's really, really hard. But the one thing that I do have is my voice and to lend that to the conversation and to basically keep hammering at this until – People are listening, wanting to have this conversation because we're glossing over it. We're glossing over right. it. And, and we're thinking that the Me Too movement is addressing this issue. It's not a female issue. It's not. That's why no. I am not, I am not, not, not on that wagon. I'm not on that bandwagon. I'm on the human to movement. If we can call that a movement, if we can have a humanity movement, then I'm all over that. I'm I'm all over that, but I don't want to, no, I, I can't do that because right now, this this has to be about human beings for me. It has to be about human beings. It cannot be about a single gender. It just cannot be. There's too much on the line for this to continue to go the way that it's going, and I, I know that people are going to be shocked that I watch or listen to Dave Chappelle, but I do. And I can engage with anybody. <laughs> I am not a hater or anything. This young man is, and I call him a young man. I mean, I'm not trying to be age, age whatever what they call ageism or anything like that. But <laughs> he, is, he is very insightful. He's very deep in his understanding and his perspective on things, very controversial. And I thought, I started digging. I, Dave Chappelle, if you hear this show, I would love to interview you. Please, please, yes. please, 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 I would love to interview you. The biggest thing is that I, I looked into his history. I watched some things where he talked about his parents, but then I looked in some other things. He has a history that's rooted in the church, very strong history in the church of his heritage of starting a church. I mean, powerful, powerful background in the church. And I thought, I can only imagine that he must have had, his, his ancestors had that kind of thought process about their sermons. Because I listen to him and I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> you know, I can't believe you said that, but you just said that probably a third of the population is thinking what you're afraid to say. Yeah. And that's my that's my thing is that kind of conversation that needs to be had is the stuff that nobody wants to talk about, nobody wants to say, but it has to be said, and therefore it shall be said, and it will be said, and it just won't be Dave Chappelle saying it. It will be said by more and more people. So, ladies, I am an equal opportunity person, and if you look at the history of this show, I have interviewed women, and we talked about so many different things that have happened to women, so don't come for me. I am not. 
okay? I am telling what I have receipts for, what I know, and this is the platform that I have. And all I can tell you is, is that this is my take, my story, my truth, and at the end of the day, I have my own receipts. So you cannot tell me what my life has not been. You cannot tell me what my life is. I'm telling you right now today is that until we make this about human beings, we will make a mess of things. And it will only get worse. It will only get stronger. It will only become strengthened because think about it. How did these women get backstage? Hello? Somebody gave them a backstage pass. Who gave them the backstage? Somebody who had the power to give them access to the backstage. I mean, seriously, come on, people. Mm. Come on. Yeah. Until we own up to our part of this system that we will not buck because we're getting paid or whatever. I'm not getting paid. I, I'm not sponsored by anybody. I produce and host a show of my own accord. I don't have sponsorship strings pulling on me, telling me what to say, when to say, all of that. I don't have that. Okay. I'm here for human beings. I'm here for people of this world. I'm here to have the conversation that some people don't want to have, but um, Patricia Adams Live, that's what we do. We talk about life's difficult topics. And nobody wants to talk about this in the floor walls of the church. Nobody wants to talk about this in Congress. Nobody wants to talk about this on the White House. Nobody wants to talk about this. Okay, why is that? So we have to start it where we are, in our community, on the grassroots level. And please stop hijacking the conversation. This is a conversation that needs to be had. It's not all about y'all. It's all about us. So let it be about us, and then we can make some changes that are for the greater good of all of us. Again, Jay Lee, I want to thank you. Tell the people again how to reach you. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much, Patricia. This, uh, opportunities like this are important because, like you said, all the high offices are doing their best to neglect conversations like this because, like you said earlier, um, it might swing the pendulum towards them, um, and inevitably so, it will. And I'm so excited that uh, we are getting closer and closer to the day where this sort of darkness is going to be um, uprooted and given the light that it truly deserves and it's overdue. Um, and we can start having more courageous conversations around what it means to um, have a society where slavery is still found and what we need to do to remove that reality. But not only just that, how, like you said, we can bring a human perspective and a human approach to these issues um, and not get so lost in our own silos or in our own personal identities because it's really going to take us working together to get something like the end of slavery off the ground. Um, but, yes, you can all find me, uh, again, at jleecoley.com, J-L-E-E-C-O-L-E-Y.com. Um, you can also look me up on Instagram uh, at j.leecoley and also LinkedIn, jleecoley. Um, I'm available all those spaces. You can talk, chat, send me a message, send me questions. I'm always open to conversation because that's what it takes and that's where it starts. And Dave Chappelle, if you're here out there, I want to interview <laughs> yes, you. Yes, Dave. Come on the show, Dave. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Dave Chappelle, yes. I think that was a great conversation to have with him. And uh, Eric Clapton, um, I would love to have you on the show. 
as well. And I'm going to play just an excerpt of Change the World while we're going out. And if anyone wants to call in, the number is 515-605-9704 as we come to the last five minutes of the show. And I will be right back. Thank you, Eric Clapton. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yes, that song that song helps me shake it off. <laughs> helps me shake it off. It's like, you know, you have, you you go in so deep and so hard, it's like I have to I have to bring myself out with Eric Clapton. So yeah, thank yeah. you. So seriously, conversations like this it can get very dark. Uh, you have to have that kind of self-care to bring you back to a more light space. Yes. So I hope you enjoyed that, that little excerpt. <laughs> 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 oh, God. So, yes, um, Dave Chappelle, want to interview you. Eric Hoffman, want to interview you. And in the meantime, thank you so much. You have been a fabulous guest, 
and I wish you all the success in the world, and hopefully we can do some collaborations, and I will reach out to you again, and feel free to definitely reach out to me with a date that you want to come back in 2020, and we can schedule that as well, all right? Amen. Thank you so much. Had a great time. You said amen like we've been to church. <laughs> amen. Yeah, you got to end it. Amen. Amen. All right. All right, Jazz. I'll let you say that. I'll let you have it. So you've been on with <laughs> Adam Live and our special guest, Jay Lee Coley. This episode has been live. And at the end of this show, within five minutes, the MP3 file will be available to download. We are distributed uh, on iTunes, on Spotify, and all of the other major distribution areas. Please subscribe, download it, and share it. And you can add it to your playlist, whatever you want to do. And just make sure to attribute it to Patricia Adams Live. Thank you so much again. And I will have Eric take us out as we go out on the 90-second count for the show. Again, it has been a pleasure, and I hope to hear from you again in 2020. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Love I have